Well, it's taken me a little while to nail down Chris Pappas, the new mayor of Mgeni, a municipality in KwaZulu-Natal. But it is the first Democratic Alliance municipality. And, and Chris, I know your father, Mark Pappas, uh, a farmer in, in the district that, uh, that I lived in for a, a period of time. But I hadn't come across you before. And looking through your pedigree, though, you got into politics pretty early on. And I'll, I'll go back to even... Uh, what you studied, uh, town and regional planning. Now, that's not a very popular choice. What pushed you there? It's actually a funny story. So, and I do apologize for taking so long to meet you. Um, I applied to three universities. I had an argument with my dad um, about whether or not a gap year was an actual thing. Uh, and he said, no, you will go to university. So I applied to three universities, uh, WITS, which was a, a degree in law, University of Cape Town, which was politics, philosophy, and economics, and then uh, University of Pretoria, which was town and regional planning. And the idea was we have accepted me first. That's where I'd go. And Tix was quickest off the mark. So you could have been a PPE, which is, a, I suppose, a very prestigious degree from UCT. And you went into something which is really public service. Yeah, I mean, uh, growing up as a kid, I, I used to play hours and hours of, uh, there was a computer game called SimCity. Uh, and I used to love playing that, uh, building little towns and little cities and making them work. So it's actually, you know, it le- led me in the right direction, I guess. And you arrive at University of Pretoria and get thrown into politics almost immediately. Interesting to see, though, it wasn't with the Democratic Alliance. Yeah, I started off uh, with COPE. Um, how that worked is that I, I, we formed the Built Environment Society. So there was no sort of society or, or faculty house uh, for architects, construction engineers, real estate, and uh, town planners. So we're sort of hanging there and engineers were doing their own thing and we were tired of them telling us what to do. Uh, and we started our own faculty house and then I got drawn into to COPE. Um, they saw me there and drew me in uh, as a member and as a candidate for the Student Representative Council and was elected there on a coalition council between ourselves, the DA Students Organization. There was a couple of others uh, and I was placed in the position of academic affairs. So I was there to look after the academic affairs of students on campus. That ended in around end of 2013, beginning of 2014, uh, where I got my first job in the private sector. And then I then went over to the Democratic Alliance as a staff member. So I didn't start in the DA as a, uh, as a politician, but as a, as a staff member, having run campaigns as a student on campus. You didn't stay a staff member for very long. No, so it was from 2014 to 2016, so it was about two and a half years. But I was thrown into the thick of it, and uh, I got given the Durban South constituency, which was from Chatsworth to Umkumas, which is basically half the city. Uh, and I got told to run the campaign there in our, uh, a month and a half before the general elections, which was which was quite a quite a thing. Going from a small little campus to suddenly having you know a million and a half votes that you had to to work with. Well, first of all, why did they give it to you, and secondly, why did you accept it? I was in a job that I wasn't really happy with. Uh, morally and ethically, to to be a, a development economist, you get sent on an assignment where they say, you know, someone wants to build a power station, go and do an assessment. And you come back with an assessment and it says, you're destroying farmlands, you're destroying the environment. And your boss kind of says, yeah, we know that, but we're not being paid to say that. We're being paid to to put it a different way. So I, was, I wasn't happy with what I was doing. And I always enjoyed the, the administrative and campaign side of politics. So when I saw a job, a job opportunity come available, um, I applied for it. And uh, the, I actually got accepted at two positions. The one was in KZN, 
two positions with the same one. One was in KZN, one was Central Johannesburg, working with all the universities, uh, also for the Democratic Alliance. But uh, KZN poached me uh, and offered me a better salary because it was home and I could speak Zulu. And the bit about speaking Zulu is, I think, what a lot of people have been impressed about. Was that a part of your farm upbringing? Yeah, so I mean, I, I grew up in the rural areas. There weren't very many people to speak English to. Um, and a lot of my friends growing up spoke Isizulu uh, and they didn't have access to, to English. So it was either sit there and pretend, you know, like no one knows what's happening or uh, just immerse yourself and learn. So people often ask, how did I learn? I say, well, I didn't. There's no particular time that I sat down and learned Isizulu to speak it at least. Uh, it was just a matter of the people that I grew up with. But there are a lot of people who grew up on farms and also had a, a good command of, a, of an indigenous language here in South Africa and then lose it as they get older. You went to Treverton and Hilton. I guess it would have been quite easy for you to also lose Isizulu. And how, how come uh, you, you stayed in touch? Um, difficult question, but possibly because I just I continued to have friends who didn't speak English as a mother tongue. So I was always you know, with people who are not speaking or, or didn't have to speak English as their, their first uh, medium. I also then went on to learn to read and write at school from grade nine. So from grade nine, I also, I mean, then was in a class doing it full time as well. But I spent most of my time teaching the Sutu kids who I was learning with, uh, as well as the foreign children who, you know, who wanted to learn the Sizulu. Chris, then it was on to the Etekweni Town Council, again at a very young age. What is it about the Democratic Alliance that it gives young people like you uh, such great responsibility in these councils? You look at your colleague, who's now the mayor of Cape Town, who was also in his early 20s when he was serving in a very senior position within the party. So I think we've, we've always had this viewpoint of fit for purpose. So, you know, that being if you are capable and able to do the job and you're the best person for the job, then you should be given that opportunity regardless of age, race, gender, whatever it might be. And that, you know, sort of breaks down the barriers of entry from the beginning. So, you know, there's the, the mayor of uh, Mokhale City, that's Krugersdorp area, is 32 uh, and he's an executive mayor. This mayor of Cape Town is 35, if I remember correctly. Mayor of Midvale is just under 40. So there's a lot of young mayors. Uh, there's a lot of young people in parliament, a lot of young people in legislatures who are the best people for the job. And, and a lot of the time we we come qualified as well in, in terms of uh, you know skills and experience and those sorts of things. So it's great to be able to be in an organization where you can apply knowing that there isn't already this hurdle to get over that, oh, you are too young or, oh, you are too female or whatever it might be. So that, that that's a great opportunity for us as well. So let's go into the, the reason why you are in the uh, public spotlight. That is the winning of the election for the Mgeni Council, which is the first time the DA has managed to win a council in KwaZulu-Natal. So it's, it's historic from that perspective. You're a young man. Uh, there's so much about this that, that is a first. But looking at it from the position that you were in, in the KZN Provincial Council. So you had quite a good job with a, a big upward trajectory. What made you decide to take on this challenge, which I suppose at the time would have been a bit like what you told us earlier in, in trying to get the whole of uh, south of uh, Itekweni to, to vote for the DA? Um, it's, it's home. Um, this, this is where I grew up. So when, when you grow up in a place and you see it slowly decline, 
uh, when you see the people that that you grew up with, and particularly the young black people that I grew up with, where the opportunities are far from the same as mine, when you see blatant corruption and mismanagement of, of small things that then lead to, to deeper poverty, deeper suffering, businesses closing, you know, you someone has to do something about it. You always see on social media, I mean, the, or the emails that I get, there's it always, it always, the last line, someone must do something about it. And I wanted to be that someone. I wanted to be part of, of making things better, no matter how difficult it was. And it's one of the reasons why I moved from the, the administration of a political party to the, the political side of a political party, because even internally um, within the DA, you see things that you can, you think can work better or, or, or do better. It's a very big organization, like all organizations, and you want to change those things because as politics works better, the country works better. But regardless of how many people are out there saying that politics is the problem, politics is also the solution. Um, and unfortunately, you know, you, you can say I'm not voting for a politician or you're standing as an independent. As soon as you're in the system, you are a politician of some, some kind. And that only works if the politics of the country works. And I wanted to be part of that change. I actually made a joke when, when I was driving down for my first day of work from Pretoria, moving back to, to Durban. We drove through the Midlands area and the, the person I was driving with, my partner, I said, you know what, uh, one day I'll be the mayor of here. Uh, just joking. It wasn't a, a serious vision at the time. Uh, and we laughed and we carried on. And he reminded me of that story when we're, when we're moving back here again. So, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's where it came from. I think also there's, there was also, when I, when I first went into politics at, uh, on the Student Representative Council, I didn't know much about politics. My parents are farmers out in the Midland. I'm the first politician in my family in the country. So this is new for me as well. I get grilled by my family all the time. But um, I got into a position where I could actually change people's lives. Um, you know, from the simplest thing, I, you know, I worked to extend bus routes for students, made sure that the library was open longer so that students could study and didn't have to go back and sit in the dark extending Wi-Fi coverage. And you realize that if, if you use a position of power uh, or influence for what it is meant for, then you can actually affect change in, in people's lives. And I think that is where people have lost, lost faith in politics, is that so many people who sit in positions such as mine, whether on purpose or just through, through lack of capacity or nefarious motives, have degraded the system to a point where people don't no longer have faith in it. And that's one of the things I want to do is rebuild faith in the political institution and the system of democracy, that your vote can bring change. A lot of what you've said, everybody would agree with, but it's, it's also would be viewed as idealistic. And yet you took the idealism and you turned it into practical reality. What is the strategy? Or how did you actually make it happen? So, so there was a motto that I got my team to adopt during the election, and that was, we're not doing this for status, we're doing this for sacrifice. So there was always a belief that win or lose, this is not about us. It's not about the Chris, the mayor, or you know, XYZ, the councillor, or the fact that the DA is now in government. It wasn't about that. It was about the fact that we would control levers that could change people's lives, because there's there's this belief that all politicians are the same as the president or we all, we all the same as, uh, you know, the movie stars that we see. Some guy comes in a black car, gets out, waves a wand and everything's changed. But in actual fact, in many communities, the councillors and mayors and people like that are, are members of the community. We want to see things work. I can promise you it's much easier to fix the potholes than have to explain to people why the potholes aren't fixed, those sorts of things. But deep down, I'm, I'm a hopeless idealist. But I'm also a pragmatist and a realist as well to know that this is the dream. But to get 
as close as possible to that. These are the steps that we're going to have to go through. And these are the challenges that we're going to most likely face. And, and you have to build up sort of a mental and, and an emotional capacity to deal with, with disappointment and the fact that things change so often. So it's not about being a, a hopeless idealist, but making sure that you know how you're going to get there and have a proper plan in place. I like having plans. You mentioned the potholes. It, it sounded a little uh, like the broken windows theory in New York City. Uh, they started at the bottom end, getting the simple stuff right first. Is that part of your strategy? Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's, we've, forgot, we've forgotten what local government is about. Local government is not about you know, building stadiums and doing all these things that we see in the news that people try and get attention. It's about making sure that the streets are clean, that the street lights work, that the parks are cut that the potholes are fixed, that there's water in the taps more often than not. Those basic fundamental things that local government is supposed to do. And once you do those right, then you can start to say, okay, what else can we do for our communities that is not within our mandate as local government? And then start to expand. There's a huge lack of understanding of what government does in South Africa and the different spheres of government. So I often get complaints about Home Affairs and SASA and the Social Development Office or you know, the Road Traffic Inspectorate. And those aren't my responsibility. And it, I'm not popular when I say, I'm sorry, but that's, that's not what I do. But slowly people need to learn that you vote for a local government to get you know, these things right. And once we've done that right, then we can start with other things. Unless we decide in South Africa that we want a different form of government where, like in America, there's more power at a local level. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's my biggest job is managing expectations. I suppose I'm the, I'm the expectation manager of Umgeni and uh, making sure that in managing those expectations, there's actually a real plan in the background and that the things are constantly moving. There was something on social media the other day, I think it was Facebook, it was saying, um, even moving slowly is progress in itself. So we will move slowly. There's a lot wrong, but it will be progress and people will see a difference in the type of governments uh, that you can have in South Africa. Were you surprised at the result? Yes and no. Um, I always knew it was going to be close. I, I never thought we'd get a you know, 55 or you know, even 52. I was hoping for like a 50 and a half, 51. You, you don't go from, from 41% suddenly to 51, 52%. But we worked hard. We worked hard. We, we, it, didn't, it wasn't something that started when the Constitutional Court said that there must be elections. Uh, since 2019, we've been working at this particular election campaign, listening to voters. You know, people com- criticize political parties for a number of things, but it was incumbent on us to say, well, let's actually change those things. Are we communicating with voters in between elections? Are we visiting people in their homes? Are we building trust amongst communities who have never voted the dem- for the Democratic Alliance before? So we listened and we tried to respond as best as we could from a long time. Um, and I think what we did helped because we, we, we saw a 7% increase in our vote, which in terms of the DA's results in KZN was by far the biggest increase in, in the province, uh, you know, by, by like 5 or 6%, uh, everywhere incre- increased marginally. So we did something right and we just stuck to our guns. And like I said, our motto was we're doing this for sacrifice, not status. And to continuously hammer that on with our teams, even with our own activists and volunteers, it helps to build a strong foundation when you get into government because now I don't owe any politician anything. I didn't promise our volunteers, you know, get behind us and you'll get a job. People knew why we we're doing this. The only thing that we owe people now is good governance and progress. And what you found, was it worse than anticipated or did you have visibility into um, the difficulties that you would face when actually governing? No, it's, it's much worse than what we thought. Um, 
uh, information at local government is withheld incredibly from opposition parties. Uh, and that's what I found in uh, as we came in. The first thing that we did was we asked the general managers to, to commission each department a status quo report to get a, a, the best picture that we could uh, before going to visit sites and look at things. And it's bad. I mean, it, it's, I don't know how things were working initially. And I, and I always use a couple of examples. We own six tractors. One works occasionally. Uh, we own five compactor trucks for refuse collection. One works. Um, we own 40 brush cutters. Six work. We don't have a line painting machine. So people are painting lines with, uh, with paint brushes. But even then, there's no paint to paint lines. Um, our oldest vehicle is 47 years old. Uh, and it's the one that has to make sure that the dump functions properly. So there's all these challenges that you face. There's no standard operating procedures. So each official does his or her own thing without following a standard procedure in, in terms of getting things done, which means that paperwork's crazy, the records are really bad, uh, and as your staff turnover happens, you're basically continuously training people on the basics instead of building an institutional capacity. So all these, these things that don't sound sexy and they don't, you can't see them as the public, um, are the things that we have to, to solve first. You know, I can't paint the lines without a line painting machine. I can't fix the potholes because the people assigned to fix the potholes were employed as general workers to street the sweeps, uh, sweep the streets. So you don't see those things as the public, but I have to solve them while people are complaining about why the potholes are not fixed or why the, the area is dirty, for example. And the progress, uh, it's only been a couple of months uh, and you had a, a pretty rocky start where the um, municipal manager didn't want to uh, to leave. Just take us through that because that it, itself was a was quite a story. Yeah, so so we have a suspended municipal manager, Mrs. Tribane, who has been suspended on thirty five charges, dismissible charges ranging from corruption to fraud to misleading counsel to perjury. All of them are dismissible, uh, and she's just you know belaboring the process at the moment. Uh, you know, e- even one of those counts sticks. And it's a dismissible offence. It relates to 19.5 million rand uh, that was um, stolen, basically. Um, through It was meant for MIG funding, which is infrastructure. She then moved that to COVID-19 expenditure, COVID-19 expenditure, um, unauthorised. Uh, and we don't know where that is. You know, there's millions of rands went to removing illegal dumping. We don't know where that is, all sorts of things. But she took it upon herself to come to the first council meeting where we were all supposed to be inaugurated. And she sat uh, in the presiding officer's chair and she decided that she was going to preside over the meeting. Uh, and as a new council, I mean, we have the majority in council. So it wasn't, a, it wasn't a matter of if there's coalitions or delaying tactics, any of those sorts of things. We're, we're going to get into council regardless, whether it was by court order, by Auburn inauguration. Uh, and we decided, uh, myself and my deputy, Sandile, that we weren't going to be part of any meeting um, where a person who has been suspended from being on any municipal property and was not the accounting officer and the person presiding over the meeting to be there. So yes, it delayed the process of getting us inaugurated, but we weren't going to start on the wrong foot. Uh, we were then a lot smarter than her, um, and we went and we got sworn in at the magistrate's office because there's nowhere that it says where you must be to be sworn in. Uh, it, just, it just says, it's actually pomp and ceremony. It just says that you must sign your oath of office. And we did so at the magistrate's court. Uh, the DA councillors and the EFF councillors went along there. Um, the ANC thought they were very smart by delaying that whole meeting with the their deployee, Tribane. Uh, and they got egg on their face when we all suddenly, by the end of the day, were all sworn in and, and councillors and they were stuck in council. So, yeah. But then we took her to court and we won with costs. Uh, so we, the Democratic Alliance, took her to court and won with costs. 
She again tried to interdict the disciplinary process about three days ago. The municipality in this case um, took her to court again, one with costs. Uh, so, you know, she's getting clapped left and right. And, uh, you know, it's just a matter of now finishing this disciplinary process, which we have explained to the presiding officer of the disciplinary process that she's frustrating the process. She keeps going to the labor court and the high court on, on frivolous issues that keep getting thrown out with cost, which is a clear indication that it, there's, there's no merit to it. Uh, so we'll get there, um, but we have a great acting municipal manager in place, Mr. Florber. Um, he's got experience in turning different municipalities around financially, and he's hard at work uh, with a list of things that we've submitted to him as the governing party, but also things that, that he's suggested to us from his experience, and he's hard at work doing that, and, and we're confident that we'll have a good working relationship. Our general managers are also all new. We only have one general manager who's been here for, um, for a long time, the rest have been here for six to 12 months. So they're all relatively new and haven't been entrenched in the the cater deployment and the nepotism and all those sorts of things. They just really want to get the job done and they want the equipment and the procedures and the political backing to get it done. I mean, small examples, they would have disciplinary issues. So a junior employee would want, uh, would do something wrong and they would not be able to discipline that employee because they would turn around and say, did you know I'm the local branch chair, you know, the regional chairperson for my political party and I know the mayor and he'll protect me. And then the mayor would. So we've given them the assurance that, you know, regardless of what political party the person is or what level they're in, they must do their jobs, discipline, and they have our support as the political leadership of the municipality that we will do as best we can to make sure that they, their jobs are easy uh, to do and that they can get things done for us. So where to from here? You had, uh, well, we know from the, the area, is it's got a lot of aged people. You had some pretty old people standing in queues for a pretty long time to make sure that the DA, that their vote counted. Uh, you, you've got five years to make sure that it continues along this vein in the future and that uh, you aren't then turfed out of office and it uh, goes back to where it was. How do you do that? How do you entrench that in the minds of the uh, of the people in the uh, Howick, Hilton, and Nottingham Road area? Is to deliver, uh, to deliver, to communicate, to be transparent, and to just do better than what has been done before. Um, and I think importantly is is to show ANC voters or those who have given a DA a chance for the first time that there there is a difference in in government. Uh, and I, and I talk about the systems, the procedures, the transparency, the communication, and the ideology behind government as well. So we don't believe in, in cater deployment. Yes, you know, across the world, there are political political appointments. So in my office, my PA is a political appointment. I appointed her because I know her. She's going to get the job done, uh, and I have trust in her. I need someone I can trust. But to make sure that the institution, and I'm, talking, I'm not talking about my office, but the institution treats people fairly, not based on political association or proximity to power. And that's what we're going to do. I mean, I think that's the biggest win that we could do in with ANC voters to show them that there is a fair government and that with a fair government, there's improvement, that you are living in a dirty community. Now you live in a clean community. Um, you, you know, 500 people didn't have electricity. Now only 300 people didn't have electricity. So to show that progress. Amongst DA voters or strong DA voters is, is to show that there's value for money in government. Uh, and someone at the at Amber Amber Valley made a comment, which is one of our biggest um, senior citizens' homes, to say, you know, there's you only have to fix, fix three potholes, and you would have done better than the last government. 
So, you know, a week into government, we retard the road that goes to our biggest rate base because they've been contributing for years and have never had any service delivery. So all you do is resurface 30 meters of road and you've done more than the last government and everyone is happy. And that's what people expect. No one minds contributing to rates. No one minds contributing to transformation. So long as you do the basics first, make sure that my rubbish is picked up, make sure that the street lights are clean, I mean, are working and that the road is drivable and that my business can stay open because the infrastructure allows it to stay open. Then I think you've got a recipe for, for re-election. Um, it's not about the fancy things. You know, we're a small municipality. We're not going to be building, you know, Cape Town Stadium and, you know, all these things that you see in the big cities. Uh, we're a small rural town that needs to get the basics right to be able to deliver to the people across all communities. What about you personally, Chris? I'm sure that the, the whole party, uh, the official opposition in South Africa is watching very closely. We, it was an interesting consequence in the last local election. All kinds of different permutations are possible in 2024, uh, including a, a new government. Where are you heading? Are you, are you uh, chained to the desk for the next four, and, um, four years and uh, 10 months? Or are you able to pursue your ambitions on a national stage? So, I mean, I haven't got those ambitions. Um, I want to prove that young people, at, when given opportunities in local government, can do, can do well. Um, I follow someone like Bongani Poloi, who was the mayor of Midval at 26 or 27, uh, and at that stage was the youngest mayor in the country, and managed to turn around a municipality and give it consecutive clean audits and make it the best-run municipality in Gauteng for many years. So, you know, I, I want to follow along those lines to say that it, it's not about climbing the ladder as fast as possible politically. It's about making sure that when you're given an opportunity, you, you do it well and that you achieve what you set out to do. Um, you know, in 10 years' time, in 15 years' time, maybe there's different options. But at the moment, I want to be a good mayor. I want to lead my team really well here, uh, the DA team, uh, and make sure that we, we do well. Are you finding that other people within uh, the Democratic Alliance or other people who've been attracted to politics are, are watching your example, maybe communicating with you, following you on social media, finding out what it is that you're doing and have done that is giving so much hope to so many people in in a most unlikely area. Yeah, I mean, I've got I've had a lot of people reach out to me and you know ask me what what we are doing, how we got to where we are, much like the questions you asked in the beginning. How did we win? How do we how do we what what are our plans? What are we doing differently? Um, especially a lot of of the people my age or younger to to say you know you've been given this platform, um, even from other political parties actually, a lot of people from other political parties saying. You know, we may not have voted for you, but you represent young people who have been given an opportunity. Please don't let us down, uh, which is an incredible amount of pressure. Um, but at the same time, you know, you know, people perform under pressure and I'm one of those people. So, you know, I don't want to let people down, but I also want to learn from people. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm new to being a mayor. There's people who have done this for a long time and they know the ins and outs of municipalities. So to be humble enough to say, you know, let, let's learn from the people who have come before us. It's not about disproving all of those who have, who have come before us, but how do we how do we learn from them and make make their mistakes or fix their mistakes first of all because they are mistakes, um, but to do better where we can, but to appreciate what they've done. So it's it's yeah, it's 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 always about constant learning, um, and yeah, the, the the followership that you get. I mean. I just something stupid. I went on to, I was off Twitter. I went on to Twitter and within like three days I had 7,000 followers or something ridiculous. Um, and that's, that's, you know, by doing nothing other than communicating what I'm doing on a daily basis.
which is strange because you would think that politicians and mayors and people would do that anyway. And you are doing that within your constituency, communicating. Yeah, I mean, uh, my, my previous director, when I was still a staff member, called communication a 13-letter swear word because it can work in your favor and it can work against you. But no one can ever accuse you of not doing anything and no one can ever accuse you of not trying to fix the problem if you're honest in what you're trying to do. So, yes, we have, you know, five compactors that are not working, which means that there's going to be delays in rubbish collection. Communicate that to people. Tell them what, you, what you're doing. Obviously, people are not going to be happy when their rubbish is not collected. But when they leave, they know, ah, oh, I know why. Um, and then you work to try and fix it. Chris, it's been good talking with you. And uh, we, we will be following your progress, as is the rest of South Africa. And congratulations on, on your campaign to start off with. And then uh, certainly family and friends who, who live in the Midlands have been giving you such a lot of support uh, that you don't even know about, uh, the way they're talking about you, and very impressed with the work that you've you and your team have been doing and uh, start for the two comms.